We will break down this week's TV leaders debate and dive into the heat of the campaign battle with Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Later, Federal Green Party leader Elizabeth May joins us in a wide-ranging interview. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning. Beautiful day here in Kamloops where T-minus 12 days until BC votes. Uh, joining me now to talk about another absolutely packed week on the campaign trail is Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning, Shane. Well, let's jump right into it. The TV leaders debate was Wednesday, always an important one. Uh, we'll start with you, Keith. Uh, what did you think? Well, I thought all three leaders acquitted themselves uh, quite well. Uh, they spoke to the, their own supporters. They laid out a, a pretty good plan of uh, what they bring to government. They also prosecuted their rivals, I think, rather effectively. Uh, having said that, I think Andrew Weaver of the Green Party probably came out of there with a little more spring in his step because uh, he was very unknown going in. Uh, and and he, unlike the previous uh, week's online sort of radio debate, uh, he really engaged in this one. He went after both John Horgan and Chrissy Clark, Horgan in particular, and he seemed to get under Horgan's skin at times and sort of threw him off his game. So uh, Weaver, I think, uh, is out. And the fact that uh, you know, you can read into what, how well he did by the fact that John Horgan today is here in the capital region. I'm back in Victoria for a couple of days, and this is normally a very safe haven for the NDP, but I think he's back in Victoria to shore up support of ridings the NDP holds because the Greens now, I think, are a real threat in terms of either winning seats or being a decisive factor in, in the outcome of the seats in a number of ridings in South Vancouver Island. Yeah, and he kept goading Mr. Horgan. Are you going to get mad at me, John? Are you going to get mad at me, Vaughn? Yeah, a very interesting performance by Weaver and a dramatic difference from his non-presence at times during the previous debate. And as Keith pointed out, Shane, the other thing is he goes after Horgan and I think throws Horgan off. Uh, you know, John Horgan is pretty solid in debates, uh, knows his stuff, doesn't rely on notes very often. And that gaffe where he blurted out that the Liberals were going to win the election, I mean, of course he misspoke himself. He didn't tan that. But I think that's the moment where you see that Weaver really was getting to Horgan. What that means, I guess, first of all, is that Christy Clark had an easier time of it. Um, I think that showed. The other thing it means, though, is... Weaver has improved his chances of at least getting official party status in the next legislature. So he has one seat now. He needs four for party status, and that matters because you get a much bigger budget, salaries, resources, and staff with party status. And that, I think, is probably Weaver's first objective. He's improved his chances of making it. I thought Andrew Weaver's strongest moment in the debate was in his closing arguments, and it was right after Christy Clark finished hers, where she took what I thought was a pretty ridiculous swipe at Andrew Weaver, and he began his comments by saying something along the lines of, that was an amazing bit of revisionist history and a perfect example of why we need change. Also mentioning in his closing comments, which caught my ear, neither of these two other parties deserve a majority. Yeah, so that's Andrew Weaver's pitch for the balance of power. I mean, look, you of course, as the leader of a party in an election, you say you're going for government, but that would be a big jump from one seat to a majority. It can be done, but it's a bit of a stretch. And I think you're right, Shane. Right at the very end, you heard his real pitch, which is, don't give either of these parties a majority. The Greens will be in there with the balance of power, keeping them both honest. 
Yep. Keith, we've seen a couple of different polls coming out of the debate. I know that uh, you said on this show in the past, the TV debate has a pretty good impact as far as people putting eyes on these guys and starting to make some decisions. Uh, you're also fresh off uh, the campaign trail yourself. So uh, what's your assessment of the race post-debate? Oh, I think it's still very close, very tight uh, between uh, the B.C. Liberals and the NDP. And really it comes down to 15 or 20 ridings, uh, swing ridings that, that can be won by either party. Uh, but the Greens now are a player in this, and they may, we may see a number of three-way races, which we really don't have a lot of experience with in B.C. There was one in 2013 in Sanish North in the Islands, where all three parties basically went 33%, 33-33. And I think that's going to happen again uh, in that riding, but it could happen again, it could happen in a couple of other ridings here in the South Island, in, in Sanish South or Cowichan Valley. Uh, so uh, I think the debate starts to harden public opinion on the three of them. I think Christy Clark probably got some value out of that uh, by the fact uh, we had a number of people in our newsroom watch the debate with the sound down for a while and point out, well, what you're looking at, and this counts for a lot, is what you see on the screen and not just what you hear. Is You've got Christy Clark, who looks relatively young and perky, and then two older guys you know, with hair mm. challenges uh, <laughs> sitting next to her. And that, uh, that, that image, I think, is, communicates a number of things as well. And that, that, holds, that stands Christy Clark fairly well in that comparison. But I think coming uh, polls or not, I'm not putting a lot of uh, stock in polls. I still think people were sitting there looking at Andrew Weaver for the very st- first time and probably like what they saw. I was struck because, as you guys know, Christy Clark's strength, and especially on the campaign trail, is her ability to be personable and engaging um, with the with the dazzling smile, all of that stuff. And it caught me, and I know I'm hearing she was a little under the weather for, for the debate, so she was a little sick in there, and maybe that affected things, I don't know. Uh, but it struck me that she seemed at times not so much like the Christy Clark I was used to seeing, uh, but more like a politician. And she was dodging direct questions, uh, making oblique references to other topics, and just seemed to be jumping all over the map in places. Yeah, there were a couple of dodging moments in that debate worth noting. Uh, one is where uh, the uh, the moderator, uh, Jennifer Burke, asked the Premier point blank about uh, some of the scandals in the Liberal administration, yeah, yeah. And controversies and police matters and all that, and uh, what, what about it? How are you going to regain trust? And Clark just switched to the message box and talked about the economy and jobs. She didn't address it at all. The other moment that I think we will revisit before the election was when Burke asked Horgan point blank, um, are the tax increases in your platform the only tax increases we would see from an NDP government in the first four years, and Horgan completely dodged that one. Mm. So both leaders, Shane, are good at answering the question they wish was asked rather than the one that was actually asked. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think that's a, probably another place where Weaver is going to go, you know, both these old line parties play the political game too well. You, if you want change and something new... Have a look at the Greens. We, we put together those questions, uh, the consortium did, and, uh, and we all knew as we're putting together, the answers are really, or the questions are really what the, the point is trying to be made, because we didn't expect the answers to be uh, really forthcoming. Uh, you expect politicians to stick to their message box. You can ask them any number of things that mm-hmm. want to answer it. They're not going to answer it. And particularly if, if it's an answer, that, that sort of drives some negatives home for, for you. That's why Christy Clark won't acknowledge uh, in, a, in a, a sort of a verbal quote 
the the premise of the question when it comes about trust and, and about controversies and scandals and why Horgan won't talk about taxes. Just out of curiosity, Keith, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, why why Jennifer Burke is the moderator? Not that I have anything against Jennifer, she's awesome, uh, but I'm just curious why we went out of province with that. She was the moderator in 2013. Uh, she's from BC. She's spent 15 years or years here as a broadcaster. I worked with her at BC TV, so she knows British Columbia. She uh, showed in 2013 that she can do this. It's a very hard job. It's a tough job. Well, Vaughn did it one year. It's. Uh, it I wasn't invited back. <laughs> it's uh, not quite like herding cats. You're dealing with three people who are under enormous pressure to farewell and to sometimes break the rules. And you've got to stick to time. We spent a lot of time preparing that debate. A lot of hours go into it. And Jennifer Burke, uh, for my money, I'd invite her back again next time. Yeah, no, she was very, very good. I wanted to talk about, I know, Vaughn, you want to talk about vote splitting. We've already touched on a little bit, but I was uh, here in Kamloops, uh, which is an interesting because we have the bellwether ridings in Kamloops South, Kamloops North. Uh, This Wednesday, Green Party, Federal Green Party leader Elizabeth May arrived by train early in the morning. She spent all day stumping uh, through both ridings, held a big fundraising dinner in Kamloops that evening where they raised $13,000 or something. Uh, And I'm just curious, uh, it caught me that of all the ridings in the province, she's here for a full, full day, which was which was kind of interesting. Yeah, the Greens obviously would like to break out uh, beyond the provincial capital region. I mean, their best bets for taking seats uh, southern part of Vancouver Island, where they have their strongest presence. But I think they're, you know, I think you're, they've got some interest in Penticton. They've got some interest in some other ridings in the interior, and you know, they want to show themselves to, to be a significant force around the province. And of course, that Shane increases the uncertainties around what happens with the green vote. Do they take enough votes from the NDP to elect the Liberals? Do they also take some votes from the Liberals and turn it into a three-way race? And I think the parties themselves are still trying to sort out what all this means. Uh, I don't think they know, and it's one of the reasons why I think this election is still wide open and could produce any one of three results, a liberal, a reduced liberal majority, a bare-bones NDP majority, or a minority government. And Keith, uh, conversely to that coin... I have never seen to a degree that the Liberals have in their social media strategies and how the Premier sort of handles Andrew Weaver being more complimentary to another party. And you can't, I mean, it's pretty obvious at this point that they're walking a fine line, the Liberals are, of trying to get the Green vote up and, and have that split with the NDP to some degree. Yeah, it was no accident that she referred to Andrew Weaver as Dr. Weaver. <laughs> Leaders debate that yeah. trying to elevate Weaver to a, lev- a level higher than John Horgan in the eyes of and ears of the viewers, uh, but you're right, it is a fine line. Uh, you go, I've looked at the the voting patterns from '09 to '13. So, Andrew Weaver was elected by basically taking equal share of votes from both the NDP and the BC Liberals in o- the riding of Oak Bay Gordon Head. It wasn't like he suddenly took all the NDP vote. He took thousands of votes from the NDP, but thousands of votes from the BC Liberals. Adam Olson, the Green candidate in Senate North and the Island, same thing. He took equally from both the NDP and the BC Liberals. I'm not sure it's the same thing in rural ridings, but in some of the affluent ridings, the Greens seem to take some votes away from the BC Liberals as much as they take from the Democrats. And in terms of Camus, it's interesting that May's there, but Andrew Weaver's headed your way again as well. Yeah, he is coming back. So, he keep, when we talk to him, he keeps mentioning Kamloops, 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 Kamloops. They, they claim they've hired a pollster to do some internal polling. 
I have to wonder whether or not they spent a bit of money polling in Kamloops and determined that maybe we have a shot here. So it's interesting that both Weaver and May, uh, every day is precious right now, where you spend your time and your money and your presence, and the fact that they're picking Kamloops is, uh, is quite interesting. And more, and to more a degree than the other two leaders. Still no John Horgan here, and Christy Clark has been here once for a cup of coffee on Good Friday. I want to take a quick break, and I want to talk about Softwood Lumber, how it uh, kind of poked its head into the campaign post-debate. Uh, more with Keith and Vaughn and Inside Politics on NL right after this. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. The softwood lumber dispute uh, hit the headlines big time uh, last week when U.S. President Donald Trump's administration levied uh, softwood tariffs at the neighborhood of 20% on Canadian softwood with some variations by company. Uh, Christy Clark seized on that uh, after the debate with her letter to the Prime Minister on banning thermal coal, which is a bit of a strike back. And I, I don't know if you got Gary Mason's column today, guys, where he called that both grandstanding and the ultimate example of bringing a knife to a gunfight. Well, we knew the softwood duties were coming, and we knew we were going to lose the first round, because we always do. The Americans stack their deck in their favor. Actually, some of us had heard, Shane, that the duties were going to be higher than 20%, so uh, we heard maybe as high as 30%. Um, I think in the long run, how this thing will be sorted out is the way it's always been sorted out in the past. We win a few things in the international tribunals. The Americans say, so what? And we end up cutting a deal to limit our access to their market to around 30% of the lumber trade south of the border. But as you know, we have to go through a lot of posturing before that. And it could have happened at a better time than in the middle of one of our provincial elections to minimize the posturing. Yeah, Keith, what did you think of this this letter to the Prime Minister uh, from Christie? Well, I mean, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's pointless, but it's, uh, it's not very effective. I mean, at the end of the day, this, this matter is dealt with between the, the federal governments, the United States and Canada, with the industry also playing an important role. But the premiers uh, themselves, I don't think, carry a lot of weight uh, in this matter. And so John Horgan and, and Christy Clark can try to pretend that they're going to suddenly solve this thing but in, in standing up to Donald Trump. Uh, no, it's going to be uh, it's going to be Ottawa and Washington and and the industries themselves that that, that forge a deal here. Uh, the provinces are, are more of a, a bit player here. And her letter to to uh, Trudeau, I you know I don't know where that goes. It's not going to that's not going to be resolved one way or another before May 9th. So it may be a, a completely moot point uh, once we get to May 9th. If Christy Clark is still premier uh, after May 9th. Um, I wonder if she'll just let that matter drop. And John Horgan is premier. Uh, I think he'll just w- hopefully wait for Ottawa to, f- to forge a deal. I don't think he's going to spend a lot of time on, on this particular file. Yeah, here's uh, here's an interesting dichotomy of audio. Here's Christy Clark two weeks ago on Softwood Lumber. My experience has been that the Obama administration was not particularly interested in getting a softwood deal. I mean, they talked a nice talk, and they put out nice press releases, but in all the time, there was never any real progress in getting a deal. And, you know, lots of political observers would say that was because President Obama wanted to get TPP through, and he didn't want to complicate that by making the softwood lumber lobby in the United States angry about it. But yesterday, we learned the Obama administration put a deal on the table. Here's the Premier yesterday. It was a proposal for us to go from 32% of market share down to 22% of market share. They would have cut our exports by one-third. 
they would have cut our jobs in softwood by one-third. Now, John Horgan is criticizing me today saying, boy, we should have taken that deal. I don't think British Columbians want a leader who will just take any deal, no matter how bad it is. And uh, Vaughn, what did you think of that? There is no way that Canada could have accepted that offer from Obama, and indeed no way that it was even serious. Mm. Look, uh, the Americans were in the middle of an election, and from the, this is the fifth softwood lumber war we've been through, and Keith and I have covered at least four of them, <laughs> and every time it comes down to the enormous power that the American lumber industry has in a few American states and congressional districts, at the end of the day, the president is rarely the obstacle to a deal. It is what those congressional leaders will put up with, and their usual starting point is nothing. And at the end of the day, we're lucky if we get it up to about 30%. So settling for 22% in the middle of an American election would have been politically stupid. I can't imagine our prime minister would have gone for it, even if British Columbia had been willing to eat that deal. Last word to you, Keith. Well, this issue, uh, in a subtle way, uh, works for Christy Clark, because it reminds people who the Premier is. She likes to portray herself as this battling warrior against the various uh, other interests. And this one lands in the middle of the campaign, turns the, changes the conversation slightly, on, and frames her again as the Premier and the leader of the province. So it works in a, in a subtle way for Christy Clark uh, on an issue that wasn't there at the beginning of the campaign. All right, gentlemen, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your insight. And uh, next week, uh, we'll set up the last show before everybody Ow. votes. So we'll, we'll go big next week. All right. Bye-bye, Shane. My thanks to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry. Uh, we'll take a quick break to get some news to the bottom of the hour. On the other side, the federal Green Party leader, Elizabeth May, joins us. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. Accountable to you. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio NL. Welcome back. Well, this week, Federal Green Party leader Elizabeth May spent all of Wednesday campaigning for her provincial cousins in the two Kamloops ridings. She sat down with us for a wide-ranging interview. Let's take a listen. Well, welcome to Kamloops. First question is, I suppose, why campaign here? Is it because the Greens have these two ridings in their win column? That's right. And I have to say, I'm, uh, although leader of the Green Party of Canada at the federal level, I'm also the kind of person who likes to support the best person who's running, regardless of what party banner they're running under. And I happen to know Donovan Gavers and I know Dan Hines. We've been friends for a long time and I respect them both enormously. So I have the double joy of coming to a riding where I think green breakthrough can happen here. And I have total confidence that that Dan and Donovan will be spectacular MLAs and a real voice for Kamloops in Victoria instead of the usual being a voice from Victoria to Kamloops. Any other writings other than these two that you're going to focus on? Or? Well, I've been focusing a lot in, in my home territory in southern Vancouver Island because that's my federal riding, and I really want to have my own green MLA. So I'm working hard uh, where I can, where I'm invited to go. Also, we went to, I went to the Kootenays. A uh, former classmate of mine from law school is doing extremely well in the Nelson area. But I'm not on the inner circle of the Green Party of B.C., election planning i i go where i'm asked and i'm happy to help every election cycle be it provincial or federal there's always this sort of mythos like okay you know this is going to be the breakthrough one yeah. this is going to be the breakthrough one and i know that the last federal election that there was sort of this feeling that you guys were going to really add to the seat yeah. that you had and then you know reality came on election night it, it, what's your read on bc do you think that this is 
the breakthroughs? Yeah, on? no, it, it was. I have to say, we had really good prospects to win a lot more seats in the in the 2015 election. Couple things worked against me that aren't working against Andrew Weaver. For one thing, Andrew Weaver is in the televised leaders' debates. Mm. That is a big difference. And uh, uh, Tom Mulcair and Stephen Harper together managed to get the English language television debate cancelled. So I couldn't be in that one. Uh, but the other big difference is that there was a was a more polarized feeling federally last time. A lot of people saying we've got to vote strategically, and that wave carried Justin Trudeau in with a majority, even though there was only 39% of the popular vote going for Trudeau. Here in BC right now, as a BC resident, it, it feels very different for the Green Party candidates across BC. For one thing, Andrew Weaver has made that breakthrough. He's in the legislature, and people can see that he's done a phenomenal job as both opposition, but also as someone who's prepared to work across party lines to do the right thing. And that has been something that makes a huge difference in how people perceive the Greens, to see someone of the caliber of, of Andrew Weaver working day in, day out in Victoria. And then the people who've been attracted, thanks to Andrew Weaver's leadership, as I said, great candidates here, you know, with Dan Hines and Donovan Cavers. These are, I, I think, a lot of people in Kamloops know their background, and certainly Donovan's already been elected uh, two times now to Kamloops Council. So, uh, and these are, you know, you look at Green Party candidates and you watch what they say and you watch what we do when we get elected. Uh, we're not people who sit on the fence. We listen to what our constituents want and then we do it. What's your read on the provincial issues? You're a BC MP, obviously, yeah. so you're watching what's going on here. So what's your read on the issues that are defining this election and, and how do you feel that the provincial Greens are sort of situated to take advantage? Well, I'm extremely impressed with uh, the positions the BC Greens and, and Andrew Weaver in particular have taken to speak to things that are really worrying across BC right now. Uh, the focus on education is terribly important. I mean, provincial jurisdiction uh, for, for our kids and, and knowing that our schools have not been adequately funded and adequately supported. Now we have the court decision, but that leaves a backlog and, and basically an eroded uh, public system that needs to be needs the reinvestment, and the Greens are stepping up and prepared to do that. And the other place is healthcare. Looking for you know how do I have my family doc? What are we going to do? How do we how do we ensure that every place in Canada has access to excellent healthcare? Uh, we work on it federally. I push very hard for a national pharmacare plan. Canada is the only country with universal health care that doesn't have coverage for prescription drugs. We need that. We should have that. That's an issue that the BC Greens speak to as well. And of course, we're looking, and I, I love the way uh, BC Greens are putting it. Certainly, I hear this from Andrew Weaver, uh, that we're BC Greens are the only party looking at the 21st century economy. It's different. Uh, the jobs our kids are getting these days uh, are jobs that we wouldn't have even heard of. When you know, I'm 62, and when I was going to school, and the, the you know, who would have thought that a software developer was a thing, right? There, this is a new economy, and the renewable energy prices are just dropping like stones. So we should be in BC investing in solar panels on roofs so that the individual homeowners don't even have to be plugged into BC Hydro to get their electricity if, or selling. We, we do have the system now at the end of the year, you can sell your uh, renewal, any energy you've 
generated in your own home, you can sell it back to BC Hydro. But we're not doing anything to help the the home and construction business. We're not doing anything to help people retrofit. We need to be looking at what the opportunities are for job creation right across the province. So I think we actually, I think the Green Party of BC is the party of jobs in the new economy. To circle back to the healthcare thing for just a second, um, you must be aware that BC signed on to the federal health accord with the mm-hmm. Trudeau government, one that our own health minister uh, called a deal that would mean less healthcare dollars and less resources over the 10-year span. So, I mean, obviously with healthcare being such a big issue in BC, right. it seems that we're kind of behind the eight ball on this deal that we've got nine and three-quarter years ahead of us. I was very disappointed that when the health ministers provincially sat down with the federal health minister, they weren't able to come to a new health accord that brought everybody in. Instead, they ended up sort of, you know, saying, well, we're walking away from the table, and then one by one, the provinces, not all of them, came back and said, okay, we'll take this bad deal. And I really do sympathize with some of the things that Health Minister Jane Philpott says at the federal level, that it's not all about money. We can do this system better. On the other hand, it is also about money. <laughs> and if you can't sit down around a table and negotiate and you know put your heads together and really put patience, put Canadians first, and that's one of the things that I find frustrating about politics is, and people may not believe it coming from a politician, that anybody in politics could hate it the way they do. I hate the partisanship that gets in the way of doing what can, what Canada needs, what British Columbians need. And I think intuitively every voter knows that no one party has all the right ideas and all the right solutions, and that if you were just listening to each other and sitting down and working together, we'd get better solutions and we'd see the kind of change that we want. And that's, that is the philosophy that I use federally, working across party lines. I know Andrew Weaver has done exactly the same thing in the BC legislature. And with a large green team in Victoria, I think things will be very different in terms of dialing down the partisanship and saying, look, we can do better with our health care dollars. We do need a better deal with the federal government. Uh, one of my favorite lines from a doctor in my community, she said, we really need to fix the bed to bureaucrat ratio. Uh, there's Every time there's more money thrown at our health care system provincially, it seems to add layers of managers on top of the people who are actually trying to keep us healthy. I love the fact the BC Green Platform talks about doing more with prevention, focusing on nutrition, which ties into the concern about food security and helping to support local farmers. But the whole piece, the way the way that Green Party policies are evolve is to think around connections, to think holistically. So we want healthy people, we should be eating healthy food. We want to make sure people are not choosing not to fill their prescription drugs because they can't afford them. We need people being able to afford absolutely what their doctors are prescribing without having to sacrifice somewhere else like in rent or mortgage. So let's, you know, the housing crisis for BC is a big issue. It looms large. And the only party that's come up with practical proposals for how to cool the housing market and build new supply of affordable housing is Andrew Weaver and the Green Party. You work in a very different political environment when it comes to political donations. I'm curious because the, the BC Green Party has uh, to its benefit, and I think it's, it's, it's caught a wave on this issue, mm-hmm. taking a leadership role in banning union and corporate donations. Uh, with the contrast from what you deal with and being here in BC, what's your perception of the, of the provincial you know, political donation environment? It's stunning, right? I mean, can you imagine that the New York Times wrote an article singling out the fundraising schemes of the BC Liberal Party because they're just so outrageous. And so internationally, 
BC is getting attention for all the wrong reasons. I mean, even the U.S. political financing scheme, I thought was pretty outrageous. But if they're saying, look, look at BC, it's the Wild West. Mm -hmm. There are no rules. You can take money from foreign corporations. You can take money from unions up to the millions. You, there are no limits. You can take, I mean, it, I do think it's creative of the BC liberals to have figured out how to break election campaign financing laws when there virtually are no laws, but they found, they, you know, funneling money through lobbyists who claim it's their money when they're funneling more corporate money into the governing party. Uh, and that's it. They've actually managed to break the non-existent fundraising laws. I mean, there is there are some limits, but not limits on the amount of money, mm -hmm. not limits on where it comes from. And I do think it's contaminated politics. And it's certainly it feeds voter cynicism about people in politics, which is why I'm so proud to be associated with Andrew Weaver and the BC Greens for saying, look, we don't have to tell you we're going to wait till we get elected and then we're going to stop doing this thing that we say is really wrong. We can not do the thing that's wrong right now because we can control our own conduct. And when we get elected and when we can form government, we will absolutely change the laws for everyone. So certainly is a, it, it cuts into how much money the BC Green Party can raise but by doing the right thing and standing on principle, I really hope voters will notice that. Although it seems to have increased the amount of money they've raised compared to past season. Well, that is true. I mean, they've, they've had a big increase in the number of donors and the donors. I think there's been 3,000 new yeah. specific individual donors who've started supporting the Green Party of BC since the BC Greens made the announcement. We're not taking any money from corporations or unions. Uh, and, you know, I support a lot of corporations. I support a lot of unions. It's not like there aren't great corporations and great unions out there. But when you've got people giving money to politicians, you know they're, you know, in the tens of thousands, they want something back. Right? Unfortunately, that's not an unreasonable yeah. assumption about why you're getting deep pockets from the LNG industry and deep pockets from fossil fuels going uh, to uh, the government party. That's that's worrying. We'll take a quick break, and when we come back, Elizabeth May talks KGHM Ajax and the Trans Mountain Pipeline on Inside Politics on Radio NL. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back. We're talking to Federal Green Party leader Elizabeth May. Elizabeth, there's two projects that have stirred some strong feelings in this city uh, here in Kamloops. One's the Trans Mountain Pipeline, the other the KGHM Ajax Mine proposal. Certainly federally uh, and provincially, the Green Party is the only party opposing the Ajax Mine, and not because we oppose mining, and nor do people in Kamloops oppose mining. There have been other mines, and there are other mines continuing to operate. But this one, I've never seen a proposal for something so large and to open pit in a community, close to the community, within city limits. That part of it, it just is astonishing. I was here in August and uh, spent quite a bit of time meeting with the local groups that are opposed to the HX mine. And since then, I've been very concerned about the trade deals that the Trudeau Liberals are pushing with Europe. There's only, there's one provision of the Canada Economic Trade Agreement with the European Union that's really specifically dangerous, and that's the one that would allow any country's enterprises and corporations within the EU the right to sue the Canadian government if we hurt their expectation of profit. Mm. So this one, uh, because it's a, a company controlled in Poland and it's a state-owned enterprise of, the, of Poland, 
right now, if we um, turn down the HX mine, which I think we should, uh, there'd be no chance of a lawsuit against Canada by Poland. But if the European Union finishes its ratification, Canada's parliament's already signed on to this, like, okay, with I voted against it. The idea that we would want foreign corporations having superior rights to Canadian corporations because they happen to be based in Europe is one that really bothers me. So I'm, I'll continue to work on that federally. Meanwhile, provincially, we're looking at the jobs in the current economy, and you don't have to trade away the quality of life of the people in Kamloops to have the increased dust, the increased noise, the increased risks in order to have jobs. There are, there are good jobs to be had. And that, that brings me to the Kinder Morgan project. I've been astonished by how little people have noticed that the National Energy Board actually refused to hear the evidence from the largest unions uh, representing the oil sands workers in Alberta, that there would be more jobs to be created if we focused on refineries in Alberta. And if we were transporting product across BC, it should be finished product for use in Canada, not bitumen mixed with diluent, which is the same same problem of a rip and strip mentality of get the resources out, you know, like shipping solid wood, raw logs out of Canada instead of getting them to our sawmills. Why are we trying to ship out raw bitumen to refineries in China instead of upgrading the bitumen so it becomes synthetic crude and refining it? Uh, in Canada. And that's the concern that Unifor as a union had, is that if Trans Mountain expansion goes through, the only remaining refinery on the Lower Mainland, the Chevron refinery in Burnaby, will shut down because it can't process raw bitumen. It can process crude, obviously. And the, the product line moving through the pipeline is going to shift to bitumen and diluent, which Chevron can't refine. So when everyone, anyone asks me about a pipeline, my first question is, what's in it? It's mm-hmm. not about the pipeline, it's what are you shipping? And is that a good idea? It, shouldn't we be doing something to create more jobs in Canada and stop importing foreign oil to Atlantic Canada, right? This picture is a little kooky to me. We've yeah. got just under a million barrels of oil a day arriving in Eastern Canada from Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and Kazakhstan and Nigeria, and is still a little bit from Norway, while we're trying feverishly to ship out unprocessed bitumen at about 2 million barrels a day. Why wouldn't we want to at least satisfy our domestic market? I pitched this to Rachel Notley. I've got it branded and everything. I said, look, Mm -hmm. we call it Fort Mac Strong. There wouldn't be a pickup truck anywhere in Canada that wouldn't rather put Fort Mac Strong in that tank than something from Nigeria. So why are we doing this? That's, to me, a big question that doesn't get discussed. So why aren't we doing it? Because we've allowed, well, we've forgotten Peter Lougheed's rules for how to develop the oil sands. And Peter Lougheed had a set of rules that made total sense, but rule one was think like an owner. If you think like an owner of the resource, and this applies to our forests, this applies to our fish, if you're thinking like an owner, then you don't want to put yourself in a position where you have no economic leverage and everything is about foreign corporations, foreign destinations, the multi, multinational oil companies. They've built refineries in other countries. We used to have 40 refineries in Canada. We're now down to 16. Why is that? It's because the big guys decided they'd rather produce somewhere else where they don't have to pay our labor costs they don't have to contribute to our economy. But this is our economy. And if you think like an owner, you say, okay, we're going to upgrade the bitumen in Alberta. We're going to refine it in Alberta. Then we've got product lines in diesel, in gas, in propane, and all the products of that refinery that we could ship across Canada and use 
to secure our own energy future, recognizing that over time that's going to be going down because we're, we're going to be using less oil over time. And we then are also ramping up all the jobs in solar and wind and geothermal and tidal. So all of those opportunities are right in front of us. But the only reason we don't have refineries in Canada is that big oil that's gone global doesn't care about Canadian jobs. But why don't we give our heads a shake as leaders and say, if you think like a country, you want to protect and build the Alberta economy, you want to protect and build the BC economy, and any policy that pits Albertans against British Columbians is wrong. We're all Canadian. And we have to do something fast to help the Alberta economy. We can continue producing bitumen at the levels we have right now and get more jobs per barrel by upgrading and refining. And then when we're shipping that product, we're fish shipping uh, a product that doesn't have the same spill risks because it, you know, bitumen and diluent can't be cleaned up, which is one of the bigger problems with the current proposal. Big issue of uh, mine nationally, but uh, especially here in British Columbia, is, is softwood. We've had some troubling developments in the last couple of days with the Trump administration, I guess, uh, according to David Emerson yesterday, catering to uh, some lumber barons and what he calls a, a basically a holdup of the Canadian economy. Uh, a billion dollars out of these tariffs are going to flow into the United States. And I'm just curious what you think of that particular issue in light of the fact that the, uh, the last deal expired in 2015 and here we are two years later and suddenly it's a boiling issue. We should have acted sooner to resolve this problem when we still had Barack Obama in the White House. And I did push. I met with the Minister of Trade. I met with the Parliamentary Secretary for Trade nationally, suggesting a way forward. I've, I've it, you know, a lot of the management of forests, well, management of forests under our Constitution is provincial jurisdiction. The management of trade internationally is federal jurisdiction. I happen for years to have studied forest policy in Canada. I've written a couple of books on it that led me into dissecting the perennial problem that we have as a country over softwood lumber and the complaints from the U.S. industry that our forestry is subsidized because of our stumpage system. It, it, we've changed a lot over the years. I mean, a lot of the wood is going to uh, by auction at market prices. This is a big change. Uh, we've made a lot of the changes that need to be made across Canada. BC could catch up on some of those, by the way. But uh, it's, a, it's, it's well, we are where we are now. There's no point crying over spilt milk, which brings us into um, <laughs> supply management. But meanwhile, on the, the, where we are right now, without taking shots at the Trudeau Liberals for not getting a deal done when Obama was in the White House, Donald Trump is going to do a lot of things that are, um, I'll use the word erratic. You don't really know which way he's going to go. I thought that Justin Trudeau was managing the relationship with Donald Trump pretty well. But in the last few days, we're actually seeing uh, targeting Canada on lumber, on dairy, uh, and actually talking about giving the six-month notice to actually leave NAFTA. We have to recognize, though, as a trading country, we don't just have NAFTA. We also sort of have belts and suspenders at the same time. We've also got the free trade agreement with the U.S., which remains in place if NAFTA is gone. And beyond that, we have the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade and the World Trade Organization. So what, what the U.S. is doing right now is, in trade law, by my understanding, illegal. We can challenge it. We can push back. Uh, we don't want to get into a, a tit-for-tat uh, tariff dispute because that will be bad for everybody. But we don't want to take this line down. We want to be very aggressive and clear that this violates provisions not just of NAFTA but of the Free Trade Agreement and of the GATT and the WTO. It, it's certainly not good news for anybody that Trump is acting out 
and and putting uh, these uh, tariffs and duties on Canadian products. But we can push back, we can fight back, because uh, the, by I, my view of trade law is that this is this is uh, Trump's position is not tenable. But that doesn't mean he won't do it. Elizabeth, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Shane. My thanks to my guests today and, of course, to you for listening. Next week is the last show before voting day, and we're going to make it a special one. See you then.